You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 30th of November 2022 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Tom Edwards. Coming up on today's programme, the European Commission's President Ursula von der Leyen ramps up efforts to investigate Russian war crimes. We are proposing to set up a specialised court backed by the United Nations to investigate and prosecute Russia's crime of aggression. Also ahead today, India and the US conduct military drills in a freezing mountainous region near the Chinese border. We'll have the latest. Plus, we'll be asking whether European inflation has peaked following the release of encouraging economic data from Germany. And then Monocle 24's Fernando Augusto Pacheco will be here to tell us why the travel guide industry is in bloom. Fernando? Hello, Tom. Some people might ask, is the printed travel guide that? Absolutely not. All that and more besides ahead here on The Briefing with me, Tom Edwards. The European Commission's president, Ursula von der Leyen, has said that the EU will attempt to set up a court to investigate Russian war crimes. Von der Leyen added that the proposal for the specialist court would have the backing of the United Nations. Let's have a listen to what she had to say. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has brought death, devastation and unspeakable suffering. We all remember the horrors of Butcher. Russia must pay for its horrific crimes including for its crime of aggression against a sovereign state. And this is why, while continuing to support the International Criminal Court, we are proposing to set up a specialized court backed by the United Nations to investigate and prosecute Russia's crime of aggression. We are ready to start working with the international community to get the broadest international support possible for this specialised court. That was European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen speaking earlier. Well, we're joined now on the programme by Sir Mark Lyle Grant, who served as the UK's ambassador to the UN between 2009 and 2015. Good afternoon, uh, Sir Mark. Good to have you with us on the programme. What did you make of uh, von der Leyen's remarks earlier? Well, I think there's no doubt that Russia has committed horrendous war crimes in its aggression against uh, Ukraine. And accountability for those crimes is really important. But I must say I'm I'm, uh, surprised that she believes the best way forward is for the European Union to set up a specialised tribunal, because I think in practice it will be very difficult to get uh, international support and certainly UN support um, for such a venture. Well, I was going to ask you specifically about UN backing, presumably critically important. And there are all sorts of nuances, aren't there, to that? Of course, Russia is a permanent member of the Security Council. How complicated is that picture to try and uh, muster that international support that you mentioned there? Well, international justice is quite a complicated picture, Tom. I mean, some international tribunals are formally established by the UN Security Council. If you think of the ones on the former Yugoslavia, on Rwanda, for instance. Now, clearly that is impossible in the current circumstances because Russia would would veto any uh, movement in that direction by the UN Security Council. There are other international tribunals like the one set up um, in Sierra Leone and the one set up in Cambodia, 
which were initiated by the host country, if you like, Cambodia and Sierra Leone, were then supported by the international community, including the UN, through a General Assembly resolution. And then there are international courts that are established by treaty completely independently from the UN initially, like the International uh, Criminal Court, which is itself investigating war crimes in uh, Ukraine. So it is theoretically possible for the European Union to set up a tribunal and then go to the UN General Assembly and try and get a majority support for it. But it seems to me a more sensible way forward is for Ukraine to offer to set up that sort of tribunal, as Cambodia did, as Sierra Leone did. And that would be much easier then to get uh, support from the United Nations. Uh, so it is a highly complex uh, picture, uh, Mark, and it's intriguing to hear your insights into what may be the most expedient way of establishing a court. I guess the corollary question, though, is given that complexity just to get the ball rolling, what are the prospects of bringing war criminals to justice for the offences that we can all agree have been happening, some of them almost in plain sight? I think extremely difficult, Tom. I mean, there's a number of aspects to this. The first is collecting the evidence. Now, quite a lot of evidence has already been collected. So if you like, the basic uh, underpinnings of a prosecution are now uh, in place in, in many cases. And indeed, let's not forget that the Ukraine normal courts, the Ukraine domestic courts, have prosecuted and successfully convicted a Russian uh, soldier for war crimes uh, a couple of months ago. But secondly, you need some sort of legitimacy. Now, some would say that just a Ukrainian court would lack international legitimacy, and that's why some sort of hybrid court uh, would be valuable. But your third problem, and the, and the most important one, is who is going to appear before the court? And we've seen many cases in the International Criminal Court where uh, leaders are taken and brought to The Hague and, and tried and prosecuted and then imprisoned. But there are many other cases where it isn't possible to actually bring them into the jurisdiction. And I think that will be a massive challenge when you're talking about Russians who are not going to voluntarily uh, surrender themselves to any court, whether in Ukraine or internationally established. And Mark, what about some other uh, aspects of this? It was intriguing to me in von der Leyen's remarks that she spoke about sort of, in a sense, sort of forced reparations, the idea that Russian money in Europe or assets could be seized and repurposed to help sort of finance the hugely expensive uh, rebuilding of Ukraine whenever that that process sort of uh, begins with, with gusto. I mean, is there any credibility to that? We mentioned, you know, like your, your long standing, you worked at the UN for a number of years. Is there a, a body of support that that kind of initiative can be instituted? Or is, again, is that fraught with all kinds of other complexities? Well, it's an intriguing idea, and it's certainly theoretically possible. Um, but individual um, European countries would need to pass law, or the European Union would need to establish legislation which would allow for essentially uh, seizing Russian assets in the country through a sanctions process, not not impossible by any means, and then uh, disposing of those assets or using those assets to then support uh, Ukraine and the rebuilding of Ukraine, as, as Ursula von der Leyen was suggesting. 
But, of course, that does come with a range of complications. Of course, there would be huge legal challenges against that in the first place. But secondly, you are setting a precedent which other less democratic countries might pursue. You know, Russia, China, others could start seizing European assets um, in retaliation. And that would be extremely dangerous and could lead to uh, wider unrest around the world. Uh, Mark, thanks for unpacking some of the various complexities around this issue uh, for us on the programme today. That was the former United Nations Ambassador, Sir Mark Lyle Grant. Now let's cross over to Monocle 24's Marco Sippi, who's standing by with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Tom. The leader of the far-right Oath Keepers militia has been found guilty of plotting to prevent Joe Biden from taking office after the 2020 US presidential election. A jury found Stuart Rhodes guilty of seditious conspiracy following a lengthy trial. The former Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison has been censured by Parliament for giving himself secret powers while in office. Morrison appointed himself to five ministries between 2020 and 2021, which he attributed to the uncertainties of the pandemic. And China's former leader Jiang Zemin, who came to power after the Tiananmen Square protests, has died at the age of 96. He ruled China as the country began opening up to the rest of the world and pursuing rapid economic growth. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Tom. Thank you very much indeed, Marcus. Now, it's been revealed that troops from India and the United States have been taking part in a high-altitude training near India's disputed border with China. The region's cold and mountainous, and it comes as generals in both New Delhi and Washington, D.C., consider how best to tame Chinese belligerents. Let's unpack the story in more detail now with Sajan Gohel, a visiting teacher at the London School of Economics and Political Science. Uh, Sajan, good afternoon to you. Thanks for joining us. What can you tell us, uh, um, if there are any more detail that we know about these drills? Well, these uh, Indo-US joint uh, exercises, they've been uh, conducted since uh, the mid-2000s, and they alternate between India and the United States uh, every year. This time, it's taken on more significance because of the fact that, as you mentioned, it's being held in relative close proximity to the line of actual control, which is the disputed border area between India and China, some 62 miles away. And It's interesting what the particular exercises are focusing on in terms of surveillance, mountain warfare skills, casualty evacuation, combat medical aid, and things like that. So you kind of see where this particular exercise is focused on. And memories are still fresh that India and China had actually fought in a skirmish some two and a half years ago in the Galvan Valley nearby, in which dozens of troops were killed on both sides. So the China dynamic certainly lingers in terms of this uh, military training operation. Yeah, it's really interesting, Sasha. And I wonder then, is this that the generals on the respective sides actually envisage conflict of that nature? You've described it wasn't that long ago, as you say, that we we did see those skirmishes. Or is this more about a coherent reaction to ongoing Chinese belligerents in the area? In many ways, it's a combination of several issues. It does uh, primarily show the further interoperability and enhancement of military-to-military relations between India and the United States. Keep in mind that both countries are two members of the four-member Quad grouping, which also includes Japan and Australia. And uh, the U.S. tilt towards the Indo-Pacific region very much 
focuses and encompasses India as being a key strategic partner in that. In relation specifically to that dynamic, China uh, is very much a, a key factor in this. The fact that India is one of the few countries that's directly challenged China's uh, growth means that it is seen as an important partner for the United States, who are keen to enhance that interoperability between their military and try and create further cohesion with the Indian uh, armed forces, because you've certainly seen a massive increase in cooperation, sharing of intelligence between both countries in the last few years, and most of it is primarily focused on China. Uh, well, it's interesting that point you make about the other coordinations, Japan and Australia. D- could we see this kind of drill featuring those nations as well? Obviously, there's ongoing intelligence sharing, there's broad brush cooperation. But do you think we should expect to see really hands-on uh, cooperation, uh, participation in drills featuring those players on the stage as well? It's becoming an inevitability where you will end up seeing joint military drills between the four countries of the Quad, India, Australia, Japan, and the United States. In fact, right now, uh, Indian and Australian troops are conducting a similar joint shared military exercise in the Indian state of Rajasthan. So you can see that India is certainly expanding its outreach uh, with all the different Quad members. I think what's also particularly curious is that In many ways, India in the past was probably one of the more reluctant members of uh, the Quad alignment. But then the standoff with China a few years ago uh, changed the Indian mindset and reprioritized China being the paramount concern, whereas previously it was tensions with uh, Pakistan. So in many ways, China's actions and growth and encroachment in the border regions with India have actually been counterproductive because it's only encouraged India to develop closer ties with its Quad members. Uh, Sachin, tell me a little bit about um, what we should or what we might expect to see from from Beijing, because as you've already alluded to in your previous remarks, often the optics or the communications around some of these manoeuvrings is often as significant as the substance of the the manoeuvrings themselves. Do we have any sense of what Beijing will make of these specific uh, military exercises and indeed what they might do in reaction if indeed they change course uh, to reflect what's been happening? Well, Beijing has certainly voiced apprehension about these military exercises. They have at the same time uh, held various uh, dialogues and and, and meetings with uh, the Indian and Chinese uh, senior leadership in terms of trying to de-escalate the tensions uh, on the border. Now, Indian and Chinese troops, they have pulled back from various key friction points along the line of actual control, but tension between the two countries have persisted. And I think China right now is also terribly distracted with the internal problems that it's facing with numerous protests across the major urban centers of the country, whether it's in Beijing, Shanghai, uh, Guangdong, uh, as well as uh, in, in Wuhan as well. And then on top of this, you've just had the news that the former paramount leader of China, uh, Jiang Zemin, has died. That in itself could create some other internal challenges that China is facing. So the country is facing a lot of distractions. And the India dynamic also is a factor in that.
Well, yeah, and to that point, I guess there are some observers who will say, look, whilst we understand that it's expedient to prepare, to go through these kinds of uh, manoeuvres, to restate one's commitments to one's allies, there is a jeopardy always because of the nature of the way that these things play in Beijing, and particularly, as you say, with these other uh, attendant pressures, that it just ups the stakes and that that's what nobody really profits from in, in the longer term. What would you say, Sajan, to that kind of, uh, that kind of view on this? We saw how things escalated very quickly during the Galvan Valley standoff uh, two and a half years ago. In the past, India and China, they had their skirmishes, but they tended to just involve troops pushing each other, there being altercations, but it not going violent. The Galvan Valley dynamic changed the, the situation completely. It set a literally a new dangerous, deadly uh, precedent. So Tensions still remain very high, and there is this concern that a future standoff between India and China could go hot. It could actually escalate into a, a conflict. But what's interesting is that you actually see that the U.S. now are standing by India's side. They actually seem to be willing to engage. And in many ways, when people talk about China's next conflict could be with Taiwan, there's also this perception that in many ways, uh, Ladakh, which is nearby to where these exercises are taking place, in many ways, that is the front line for the Quad and the potential uh, front line for a future standoff between India and China. Sajan, really interesting stuff. Thanks for your time. As always, that was our friend Sajan Goel joining us here on The Briefing on Monocle 24. The Foreign Desk is Monocle 24's weekly global affairs programme. We tackle the world's biggest news stories, as well as those left untold. If actually you speak to the ordinary people, their aspirations is for a unified country, whether you talk to business people, to school teachers, to market traders, and so on and so forth, across the board, is they want to see their country recreated as it was, only this time as a democratic, accountable system. Our expert guests offer in-depth analysis and first-hand experience. In one of the Ebola treatment centres I went to had been burned down by a community that were very resentful and frightened of Ebola, and they still have a bunker in the middle. They've dug a big, deep bunker where they can hide if people come and shoot at them. The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller, is available every Saturday from midday London time, right here on Monocle 24. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24 with me, Tom Edwards. New data from Germany suggests that inflation has dropped to 10% after hitting record highs last month. It suggests that pressure on Europe's biggest economy is starting to ease after months of gloomy data. But could it also be good news for the rest of the continent? Well, let's unpack this further now with Victoria Scholar, Head of Investment at Interactive Investor. Good afternoon, Victoria. Now, admittedly, I may be trying to find some silver linings wherever I can get them. Is there any good news here? Well, it's interesting because we had the Eurozone data um, as a whole today and we saw that inflation dropped for the first time in 17 months. That number eased to 10% in November, falling back from a record high of 10.6% in October. And it was a bit better than analysts were expecting. Economists were penciling in a figure of 10.4%. Um, and it looks as though energy actually slowed in terms of price increases. So that is the silver 
silver lining. Um, but we did see that food, alcohol and tobacco prices still increase. So we're not out of the woods as of yet. Um, and we also had some individual country inflation figures out yesterday. And today we saw that Germany's inflation rate actually dropped to 11.3% from 11.6% last month. And Spain's inflation rate eased too. So it's difficult to say whether we have actually reached peak inflation, but at least this is some sort of early signs of some positivity finally starting to come through. Well, yeah, and I guess the obvious question, uh, you know, after that, Victoria, then is what needs to happen for this trend to become, you know, more permanent to endure? We're sort of geared up for a cold winter across the block, certainly here in the UK. That could have a knock-on effect again on on energy provision, which we know is a big factor here. How how do we uh, get figures moving properly back to their lower former levels? Well, the European Central Bank has an inflation target of 2%. So you can see that we are considerably higher than where it wants to be in the medium term. Um, the central bank's mandate is try to is to try to keep price levels under control. And it does so by raising interest rates. And that's why we've been seeing interest rates push higher around the globe, not just in the Eurozone, but here in the UK, as well as in the United States and other countries as well, all desperately trying trying to tackle this post-pandemic revival in inflation that was exacerbated by the war in Ukraine by pushing up commodity prices sharply higher. So it looks as though central banks are going to continue to push higher with interest rates to try to curtail economic activity and bring price levels back down towards that 2% target. Um, what about if we look to the US, um, Victoria? It's interesting. Uh, some people that you, you speak to suggest that you know the US economy maybe is a little more robust. It's further ahead than Europe. And whilst winter will be particularly tough on this side of the pond, the US, which is still obviously the world's biggest economy and a big driver maybe of the recovery, things a little brighter. We've seen a dip in inflation stateside as well. Are there further crumbs of comfort if we look towards what's happening in the US? Yeah, it does look as though the US economy is a little bit more robust. Of course, one of the big drivers of inflation this year has been the war in Ukraine. Europe, of course, a lot more closely uh, situated geographically, but also in terms of geopolitical ties to Russia and Ukraine than the United States. So at least it's spared some of those pressures. But the post-pandemic uh, supply chain bottlenecks that have been uh, pushing inflation higher around the world still apply to the United United States. Um, but we have started to hear from Fed policymakers at Central Bank that perhaps the recent pace of tightening could start to slow. It's not saying that it's going to stop raising interest rates, but at least it might go for slightly less aggressive uh, interest rate increases as it watches the data to see whether those inflation readings do come down as we head into next year. Those supply chain problems possibly ease off as we get further and further away from uh, the pandemic. And yeah, I think the US economy is a little bit more robust than, say, the UK or the European economy at this point. Good news. Well, there's definitely some good news there, Victoria, which is what we've been waiting some time for. Thanks for shedding a little light on that for us. That was Victoria Scholar, Head of Investment at Interactive Investor. You're with The Briefing on Monocle 24. Enhance the year to come and treat yourself or someone special with a Monocle subscription this festive season. To round out our 15th anniversary year, for a limited time only, there's 15% off with code RADIO15.
Finally, on today's programme, the sale of travel guides is on the up. Lonely Planet and Rough Guide still dominate the industry, but a wealth of more selective titles are also proving to be more popular than ever. Well, Monocle's senior correspondent is Fernando Augusto Pacheco, and he's here with me now because, Faye, you've been writing about this in the Monocle Minute. What were you musing about? Well, I was musing how travel guides are wonderful, and I'm not just saying they're wonderful, for actually they're rejuvenated in a way Tom because there's a lot of kind of new uh, brands and publishers uh, even on the upcoming episode of the stack I spoke with the uh, the founder of the Massy Nassy Chic Guides so she's uh, she's from London but she moved to Paris actually and it's interesting that she wrote a guide she, na- she, did, she didn't have this kind of Emily in Paris vibe she was never <laughs> in love with the city but then she ended up actually falling in love with the city and doing this beautiful guide, actually. And I'll tell you why I like it. If you want to browse through as well. Yeah, Faye, I should tell our listeners, Faye's got a number of yes. uh, guides here for me to browse hard copy. Here's this one. But it's okay. a big one, That's actually. The I'm flicking through it. This is quite hefty. Now, is the idea... You're not carting this around on the metro in Paris, are you? Because we say it's uh, hardcover. It's quite weighty. It's compact. It would fit in a handbag, but it's more of a coffee table before you go kind of vibe thing but but that's the thing i think there are a lot of different ones i mean we'll talk a little bit about this one but there's also wild sand which has been featured on the forecast completely different format this one you can definitely take it with you it's a very small actually it's actually the size of a hand almost in a way uh and wild sand is a different story um it, it's a series of guides only in U.S. cities or regions. And they just okay. published their fifth edition as well, which is about the Big Sur uh, coastline. And isn't it a thing of beauty, Tom? I mean, you're, you're browsing through. The design is so elegant. It feels like an old almanac as well, in a way. Well, it does. I was going to say, my kind of uh, introduction to the sort of traditional, more austere, serious Victorian era of travel guides is the old B-deckers, the famous red leather bindings there incredibly sort of evocative I always think of a, of a bygone era do you think a little bit about what drives the enduring popularity of these volumes these wild sound ones in particular is that they are unashamedly a little old fashioned I mean that as a, as a compliment yes and people want more from their guides they want a little bit of literature they want a little bit of culture they don't want to know just you know which monument to see or which top restaurant uh, to go as well so for example I have the Los Angeles guide from Wild Sand it's very beautiful there's a, a, a poem here on how to to pronounce Los Angeles. I'm not going to read the whole poem, but uh, basically the former editor of the Los Angeles Times was criticizing people that says Los Angeles, you know. They said, you know, uh, all long jihad and rhyme with yes and all about Los Angeles. I mean, it's beautiful. I never, it's lovely, I ne- Fernando. Ooh, I sh- I, next time I'll read the whole poem uh, to you. And, and I think that's why uh, this new bunch of publishers are doing so well, because people... I think they understand that what people want from their guides these days is not just like a little list because in a way some facts you can actually find on the internet. You just Google and you say, okay, uh, how to go to the Eiffel Tower or how to kind of, you know, do something quite basic in a city. But they offer something a bit more. Well, and we should be clear here, obviously, Monocle has a fair amount of skin in the travel guide game ourselves. We've got our beautiful uh, hardcover but very portable um, travel guides. And I mean, maybe we should reflect a little on why it makes sense for a brand like us to to, to, to to engage with these with these guides because you're right people can have an app and they can have a map on their phone but it was obvious to us I don't know from, for quite some time that there's a different 
depth, the level of engagement that comes if you've got something printed about the places you're visiting. Absolutely. And, and it's about trust in the brand, Tom. And, and that's the problem, at least when I go traveling. First of all, I want to rest my eyes. I don't want to just be looking at a small screen. But even Monaco, I'm not just saying Monaco, but of course, doing a little self-promotion here. I mean, if people like Monaco and they, and they like traveling, of course, they would trust uh, a guide uh, made by us or indeed by the Wild Sam uh, Ting or indeed by the Massinassi Sheik Guide. So I think this trust, you know, allows you to say, oh, if Monaco is saying, you know what, it's more or less my, my type of journalism. Uh, and yeah, indeed, I have the Portugal handbook here. And I like that form. Well, 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 this is interesting because, of course, we have, we have a travel guide to, to Lisbon, which obviously is much more uh, portable. But the, 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 the Monaco handbooks are a bit different. And they're, again, I guess, an expression uh, like the, the Parisian guide that you're, you're also, you also have there. It's more of a reference book. It's a planning mm. thing. It's a way to engage with the place before you go. It's not just about street corner convenience. It's about a, a deeper engagement. This is definitely something that we should um, be celebrating, Fernando, right? I think so as well. And, and Tony, if I may say, going back to the Parisian guide here that I have with me, it's information that I actually find it very useful. Uh, so, for example, there's a page here talking about the Parisian house party and what you should do and what you shouldn't do, actually. I mean, this is very helpful. Do remember to dab a good perfume or cologne under your ears. And of course, because there'll be a lot of uh, cheek kissing there as well. So, I mean, you have to smell uh, good. But I mean, that's, I think that's very so valuable So you need to be tips. fragrant in Paris specifically. What about the don'ts? I wonder if I've committed any <laughs> faux pas here myself. Probably yes, I imagine you're going to tell me. Actually, there's an interesting one. Uh, don't shake hands with guests or try to hug people. So you would imagine, oh, I'm in Paris. But if you're not actually from Paris, don't worry. You don't actually need to kiss everyone or shake hands so be discreet and perhaps kiss the more uh, intimate ones as well okay well, that's probably some <laughs> reflections for another program fernando um fascinating stuff and remind listeners how do they uh, tune in to the stack when and where each week because you're often uh, featuring some of these delicious guides on the program absolutely well uh, every saturday at 10 a.m london time and you can listen to my interview with Vanessa Grohl from the Massinassi Chic. And I actually interviewed the guys from Wild Sand Press uh, as well back in 2020. Get stuck into the stack yeah. with Fernando every Saturday. Faith, thanks for being with us on the briefing this Wednesday. That's all we have time for on today's programme, which was, as always, expertly produced by Rhys James. Our researcher was Emily Sands. Our studio manager was Nora Hull. We'll be back at the same time tomorrow. Join Andrew Muller and friends for the Daily in a few hours' time. But from me, Tom Edwards, and the rest of the Wednesday briefing crew, goodbye.